From breaking news to local stories happening where you live, this is the Jill Bennett Show podcast. Well, you know what? It didn't go so well the first time, but back to the drawing board did the VPD go, and now you've got an opportunity for some school liaisons to once again find themselves onto school property, trying to make sure that everybody's a little bit safer, that things run a little bit smoother, and uh, I'd love to see what came of this and what progress has been made after it was pulled off the table and now finds its way back in 2023. Doug Spencer is a former VPD officer who now works in gang prevention. Doug, good afternoon. Good afternoon. Well, let's talk about this from the beginning, because I think conceptually it's something that our schools absolutely need. And that's, again, a personal opinion. But the first time around, there were a few tripwires. Can you walk me through maybe some of the challenges that this program faced when it first was rolled out? Um, Yes, certainly uh, parents don't want police on there arresting kids and, and making the kids feel they're in a dangerous situation. But you know, over the years, I've known school officers in Vancouver, and they're the ones that get those positions are very versatile. Um, they have a huge skill set to deal with all the the drug issues, the gang issues, the bullying, all of that stuff. So, um, yeah, it's you know, and then the what where this came from was a, a BIPOC kid said that he didn't feel comfortable at the school. Um, that kid had seen his dad arrested by the police. So he's, it upsets them, right? So what they should have done is sit down with this kid, explain to them why they did what they did, um, go through the steps. This is what the police are there for. We're there as a resource for you and all the other students, which, you know, it was proven when they did the survey. I think eight, 85% of the kids wanted officers there to be a resource. But of course, you know, these days you, you certainly got to be aware of the, the race situation and different ethnicities coming into Vancouver from other countries and schools. And, you know, it, it, it's a real complicated thing. But, you know, Vancouver is an extremely diverse police force, probably the most diverse police force in Canada. I've worked with officers from almost every ethnicity. So um, they're in a place now back in the schools where they can help all these kids and be a resource to them when trouble, you know, confronts them. So under the new program, it sounds as if the police are going to try to change their look and try to be a little more discreet because maybe it was a little too much presence too soon. And maybe that did get people's backs up. And again, I haven't read the entire third party report, but there was a majority of black and indigenous students in the first go around that didn't feel that the police and schools helped foster a sense of safety. So again, optically, let's take a look at this. Now they're going to have a more casual look, you know, for example, polo shirts instead of full uniforms. They're going to drive unmarked cars and be a little more discreet. Do you think it's as simple as maybe just blending in a little bit more and maybe not being so ominous with that presence? Yeah, no, certainly. It, it's a really good idea to be uh, part of. All the officers I know have gone to the grad, followed kids from grade 8 to 12 and gone. they've been asked to go to the graduation by the graduating kids because they've developed a rapport and a relationship with them, right? So to blend in more, great idea you just got to understand that these officers you know if they're in plain clothes and stuff and unmarked cars some of these gangsters may come around not knowing their officers and you could be uh, one officer against four gang members that's the danger to the police 
right? So yes, um, but I understand about making the kids feel safer. You know, some of the com- countries they come from, the police are pretty corrupt, and uh, they've seen. I've been told stories from kids I've talked to and interviewed that they watch policemen shoot their dad right in the head, right in front of them, hmm. or behead them, right? So. You know, a kid from Somalia told me he watched the police cut his dad's head right off. So, yeah, they're not going to be comfortable around uniformed policemen, for sure. So they, I think they've kind of maneuvered this pretty good and worked it out. It, you know, it's all about the kids being feeling comfortable and being safe. Doug Spencer is a former VPD officer who now works in gang prevention. Doug, let's talk about what the police have the capability to do in this situation. We talked about the fact that maybe there's a plainclothes officer against multiple gang members because they didn't realize that there was a cop there. What do they have the right to do? Like, is this one of those things where they're simply there for optics or can they actually um, arrest people on site? Can they call for backup? Like, what are the things that they can do and what are the, the, the parameters or the boundaries per se? Yeah, you would certainly, one officer wouldn't take on a a carload of possible gang members or drug dealers or something. They'd call for cover. They'd wait till there's enough members there. And usually just the mere presence of a a number of policemen, these guys won't try anything, right? So, but they will certainly intervene if, you know, gang members are beating up a kid over a drug debt or something. Yeah, they're going to intervene. That's their job. But, but is it also, but, sorry, not to cut you off, Doug, is it also one of these things where let's say there's just two, you know, two grade 11s and they get in a fight in a hallway? Is it also on that officer to, to break that up as well? Or is this strictly to keep external influences out from our school system? Yeah, no, they, you have to intervene on that too, because stuff can happen during fights. Kids can get seriously injured or even die, right? If they fall wrong and hit their head and stuff. So the officer would intervene and, you know, 99 times out of 100, as soon as those two kids saw the police there, the police identified themselves, you know, by uh, voice and and presence, uh, they would run in two different directions, right? I think it's I, I think it's a program that once they sand the edges is definitely needed, especially in certain pockets of the Lower Mainland. I mean, we've heard of, um, you know, aggressive situations in East Vancouver, in Surrey, in Delta. Um, It's definitely something that I think needs to happen. And I really hope that after this report came out, the consultation from the community, that this new program can finally gain some some traction, pardon me, because I think you guys are on the right track. Doug, thank you for the time today. You're more than welcome. You know what? When it comes to the Bank of Canada, I just cringe every time I see it. They have had so many rate hikes over the last several months that you just assume that when there's another announcement coming from the big boys, that it is going to be bad news. But there's always a but here. Could the rate hikes actually be over and done? What economists are saying as the economy stalls? I'm joined by CKNW business analyst Rob Levy. Rob, good afternoon. Hey, good afternoon, Rob. Nice to be with you. It's great to be with you, especially when I think there might be some reprieve. I mean, I'm hearing rumblings that maybe this Bank of Canada announcement won't have an actual hike. What are your thoughts? You might not have to cringe next Wednesday. Nice. That's the the (laughs) takeaway. It is because we've seen an economy and bad news is good news is, is the scenario here. The Canadian economy slowed very unexpectedly in the second quarter. It declined by... Two-tenths of a percentage point. Everyone's talking the potential now of a mild contraction. I think they're afraid to say the word recession. Uh, but bit, bits of ups and downs, and it, it is. It's going to say the Bank of Canada 
might not have to raise interest rates any further because the higher interest rates have had their impact and are continuing to have an impact on the Canadian economy. So the caveat in all that is, is the inflation story, uh, but definitely the interest rate sensitive areas, sectors of the economy are, are feeling the restrictive interest rate policy and are slowing down accordingly. When you see the report that comes out and, uh, you know, the numbers weren't jarring, but Stats Canada with their release today um, showing that there were, you know, modest changes. But again, you combine that with everything that we've seen from the Bank of Canada and all of their their hikes and spikes. Is it actually now starting to show some return on investment? Like, is it working? It definitely higher interest rate policy is working in this country. And you just have to look, you know, Canadians have a higher debt burden, especially that of the United States. That's why, you know, the consensus is still that the Fed's going to move ahead with an interest rate hike potentially in the fall, not likely at their September meeting, but still in the fall. But the Bank of Canada, for that reason, could be done now because of we are more debt burdened uh, household or consumer in this country than our neighbors to the south. So you know, the fact that income growth year over year now, or sorry, not income growth, but personal expenditure. So consumer spending is only up 1.6% year over year. I mean, that tells a story of feeling the weight of higher interest rates. The fact that residential investment and within that uh, building on, on houses is now down for the fifth quarter in a row uh, because activity is slowing in the real estate sector because of higher interest rates and, you know, where mortgage rates are today. I mean, that directly tra- translates to what the Bank of Canada policy has been. Uh, so, you know, again, there's one caveat to all this, and this is that the Canadian economy is looking a little weaker, which means maybe our currency then gets weaker and we sell our goods in the U.S. So the inflation story, you know, is the X factor in all this. And we could see some higher energy prices that could put a little pressure on the Bank of Canada. But all things being equal, this is why all the Canadian banks came out this morning and said, pressure's now off the Canadian Central Bank and we could be done with this hiking cycle. Well, that would be good news, at least optically. But, you know, Rob, let's talk a little bit about consumer spending and and consumer confidence. I mean, we're going into a quarter right now where, you know, kids are going back to school. We're starting to look at Christmas. Um, I can imagine that there has been some business that have been negatively impacted, especially in those sectors heavily relying on consumer demand. Is there there any one in particular that really strikes you as as an industry or a sector that, that could use some stabilization here? Well, you know, it's interesting you say this because especially when you talk about the the topic of recession, and this has been sort of the call from some economists across the board, is it's been hitting different sectors at different times. So it's not the idea that we're going to have a concentrated recession and the economy is going to fall off and everyone's going to feel the weight of this policy at once, but then it influences different sectors at different times. So we had a little surge say in travel and hospitality demand, but then certainly, you know, the summer's over and going into the fall, that's an area that can then feel the weight of it. Especially, as you said, as everyone's tightening their belt and going back to school and focuses into other areas. Uh, real estate, you know, we've seen uh, the slowdown in that sector, especially when we had that uncertainty of interest rates going drastically higher uh, month in and month out over the past year. And the real estate sector was hit a little harder and we've seen some signs of recovery, but perhaps slowing down again. So. You know, that's sort of the challenge with this kind of economy right now. And especially the Bank of Montreal sort of updated their forecast and they said, you know, we might return to growth in the third quarter. But then expectations are that the economy could contract again in the fourth quarter. So it's almost a start stop kind of uh, scenario. And the challenge will be, too, is is when will interest rates stop being restrictive? When will the Bank of Canada cut interest rates? And that's where that. Uh, the forecast gets a little hazier, too, because everyone's saying, you know, we might not return to 2% inflation until 
late 2024, 2025, and hmm. they don't start cutting interest rates till then. So a consumers, households, businesses, they're still feeling the weight of higher interest rates in the interim. So if you had a mortgage, it was up over the next like six months to a year. Uh, are you just trying to kick the rock down the road a little bit longer to try to get to the end of 2024? Or are you going to have to just, you're just going to have to wear a, a much higher rate for the next couple of years? You know, I think that's that's the question, too. And it's one that I think a lot of people are looking for, too, especially with the Canadian banks just reported earnings this past week and the number of mortgages. You know, we saw data from TD and Royal Bank of Canada where amortizations had extended beyond 25 years, which they traditionally report. And then some of the banks for the first time ever had mortgages with amortizations beyond 35 years on their balance sheets, which means these variable rate mortgage holders that didn't increase their payments, so they just stretched out the life of their mortgage. I mean, that's the challenge then, you know, for, for those people who are in that situation. And, and they will feel the impact, especially, as you said, those looking to renew, because then that comes out of your, your monthly budget because you're allocating more towards your mortgage payment. That's been, that's been the greatest impact to inflation uh, to households over the past year was we saw it, mortgage interest costs that just shot up drastically. And especially if you had that, say, four-year or five-year fixed rate mortgage and then you're coming up for renewal, it, it hits you very hard and all of a sudden. Rob, I am in that 20%. So <laughs> looking for some insider trading there. A little more time. A little more time, I hope. <laughs> I'm, hoping, I'm hoping. Rob, thank you for all the insight. I love when you come on because I just think there's so many people out there that are just too scared to ask. So being able to tune in and get eight solid minutes of information on this is outstanding. Please stop by and let's make sure we do this again. Yeah, I appreciate it. It's very nice to chat with you. Well, Vancouver Island's Highway 4 has fully reopened. Oh, how good does that sound? But there are some questions now that the roads are finally back at full capacity. Everything between Tofino, Ucluet, and Port Alberni. Let's talk about that more with Jolene Dix. She's the CEO of the Alberni Valley Chamber of Commerce. Jolene, good afternoon. Good afternoon. How are you? Well, I'm great, and I'm sure everybody over on the island's feeling a little bit better now that Highway 4 is no longer the topic of conversation as far as how do we find workarounds. But let's get into the details. Um, what are the economic costs of the lost tourism season? Are those numbers even on the horizon? As the Chamber of Commerce, we're partnering with the Tofino and Euclid Chambers to really study and measure the impact. So um, the Alberni Valley doesn't have a dollar value for that but you know millions of dollars have been lost in this tourism season and it's one of those things where you were just it's beyond your control and i know that sometimes in moments like that it's easy to sit back and throw your hands up and say boy what would you do but in the people that i talked to there was a lot of creativity and i think that's something that you guys need to be applauded for can you talk about some of the things that you guys did to you know find workarounds to at least try to keep businesses um you know afloat during these you know tough couple of months yeah, kudos to all the businesses that have just been resilient. So some of the ways that there was workarounds in other industries outside of tourism was, you know, scheduling um, work to be done on either side of the road closure and paying for staff hotel rooms. So that's an added expense to doing business at this time. But that was some of the forward and proactiveness that businesses thought to do during the closures. Do you feel that there's going to be any additional support coming from the government? I mean, before I, I could just ask you the blanket question of did you get enough support, but do you think that there's anything more on the horizon? Um, we, I, we're, we're welcoming financial support. I don't know if we'll get that, but we're 
we're committed to collaborating and finding other solutions in unique situations like this where we weren't evacuated or anything, but we were directly and indirectly impacted by the road closure. So we do need to get creative and use every tool in the toolbox to support businesses um, financially when these types of events happen. You know, I know when it comes to a chamber of commerce, everybody kind of rolls up their sleeves and wants to help each other. But I would assume whether it's the mayor or the chamber of commerce from all these different neighborhoods that you have to be thinking of ways that you could find a secondary route. Was this the eye-opening moment that made you say, you know what, we've got to find a way to make this happen? Yeah, it definitely opened everybody's eyes of how much the supply chain could be disrupted when this happens and everybody's livelihoods and not just the business side of things, but just life in general of visiting people again after the pandemic or doing personal travel or the all the tourists that are impacted by this. So the regional district is putting together a committee to, to put attention to this right now. So we look at the work that was done. It included rock scaling, debris removal, the installation of barriers, catchment fencing. I mean, it was everything over the course of Highway 4's reparations. One of the things that I would assume is now that if you guys start to look from a business perspective and a supply chain, that maybe there should be more money put aside in the event that a future situation arises. Is this also something that you guys are looking to do heading into 2024? Is like, okay, maybe we need a more uh, robust contingency plan? Totally. I think it really showed us the gaps. Um, So we need a lot more logistic plannings when a road closure happens, whether that's activating the port or um, partnering with the other side of the road closure and using warehouses to temporarily store um, equipment, non-perishables and all that kind of stuff. So we we need logistical support for sure. It's it's just worth the conversation, but I think you guys did such a tremendous job over the course of the last couple of months because, uh, you know, as a guy that has been to Euclid and Tofino, and I know that area all the well, even though it was just for <laughs> junior hockey purposes, um, it's such a key part of that community. So, Jolene, I just wanted to bring you on today, not just to shine light on this, but to say thank you for everything that you guys did behind the scenes. I've heard countless stories of people uh, coming together and rallying to make sure that people could keep their heads above water, and um, I'm just so happy that now Highway 4 is fully reopened and you can get back to business as usual. Yeah, we're super, super happy and we're grateful for everybody that played a part in helping us get the message out or coming together to solve problems and to all the road workers that worked, especially during the summer and the heat, to uh, keep us safe and get this operational. Awesome. Well, you're open for business and I'm going to let everybody here know that so that hopefully you guys get a few more cars coming down that highway and spending money in those small businesses. Thank you for this conversation today, Jolene. Thank you so much. Have a good weekend. You know what? When it comes to city permits and fees, some fee, some people think that it could actually be a pro and a con. I don't know how it could be a pro when it comes to unaffordable housing, but let's talk about this with Paul Sullivan, who can probably break this down a lot better than I can. Principal and regional leader at Ryan ULC, a global tax services and software provider. Paul, good afternoon. Good afternoon. Pleasure to be on your show. Well, thank you for having me, and I do appreciate you doing this, getting ready for a long weekend. I know everybody's looking to get out of the house or at least get out of the office place, but let's talk about this. City permits and fees are actually helping create even more unaffordable housing. Can you flesh that out for us? Yeah, so we undertook a study. Uh, Most people appreciate that the cost or price somebody has to pay for a home is equal to land value costs 
and profit. And profit is a, a reasonably consistent thing that's kept in check through a, a competitive marketplace. But cost is where we see these fees. And, you know, we found that 29% of the cost of your home is actually paid to the government through property tax and fees they charge. So your million-dollar condo, you're paying roughly $300,000 to different levels of governments for their fees, which if you amortize over the life of your mortgage, that doubles. That's costing you $600,000. So when it comes to affordability and you know the rhetoric we're getting from government, there's a lot of cost savings that can be put into place by government themselves. You uh, penned an article not long ago, and I thought there was a lot of sharp sticks in it, which, you know, for radio is great. And I'd love to maybe walk you through some of them right out of the gates, right underneath the the byline. It says, quote, bribes are like steroids. Everybody's doing it. Now, I know I'm just paraphrasing, but can you walk me through what that means? Well, in the lower mainland, home builders are required to enter into a process to negotiate over their zoning. Their CACs is is what it's called, a community amenity contribution. And what it does is it creates a pool of money that's meant to be used for amenities in the community or building affordable housing. But uh, what we're saying is it's not actually a legal vehicle that's allowed for under legislation. I'm looking at a, a provincial report here that was done in 2014 by the BC government And it says, avoid legal risk, negotiate, do not impose, avoid perception that zoning is for sale. Well, you know, I think the market is uh, quite aware that zoning and and this negotiation process creates nothing but costs. And if you add these CAC costs to the property tax charges and all the new taxes imposed on home building, 30% is what you're paying to the government. Which is gobsmacking, if you think about it, because we're not just talking about a couple thousand dollars here and there. We're talking about big, big money that's going. You mentioned um, Kelowna, which I thought was really interesting because Kelowna tested a 10-year property tax exemption from the article, if I'm reading it correctly. And you thought that that was a positive small step. Can you talk about what Kelowna is maybe doing right? Right. Okay. So now what we're doing is we're incentivizing development. I mean, we know, everybody knows that we must come up with supply. And so Kelowna said, anybody that builds rental housing and maintains it at rental will not pay municipal or provincial property taxes for up to 10 years. And suddenly they had a 70% increase in the supply of new rental housing. So there's the incentive program that works versus the disincentive of taxation and trying to crush demand for housing in order to try and bring prices down so many of these policies have failed over the past five years, and it has proven to be the wrong way to create housing, which will create affordability. Well, Paul, there's a couple of misnomers out there, and maybe you can help squash them. For example, a lot of people will say, you know what, okay, housing is slowed down, but those that remain are just getting snapped up from overseas investors. So everything that's been put in place has only hurt a Canadian investor or a British Columbia investor because those from overseas have much deeper pockets and they're willing to pay the taxes to get the property. Yeah, more political rhetoric. That's all I hear. You know, people need to study the math. You know, when 2016, we brought in the foreign buyers tax at 15% and then cranked up to 20%. Back then, foreign buyers were 10% of our marketplace. When we brought in the foreign buyer ban this year, so we're banning foreigners from buying, foreigners were only 1.4% of our entire marketplace. So to my view, these are political plays 
to placate the public that government is taking care of housing where they're not looking at the data. It's just not working. Let's look into that a little bit more. So we we call it political speak, and I'm not going to say that there's somebody on the take, but there's got to be something more to this that we're missing because the reality is, is I think we're being played for fools in some instances. Am I wrong to say that? Yeah, no, I, I think we are, and um, they, they, things are being said that just don't pan out. The policies are not working in providing housing, and people are hurting in British Columbia. You know, we've had 10 interest rates hikes in, in the past uh, year or so. Uh, 52% of Canadians are within $200 of their total cost for, per month. So, you know, bringing in more, more expenses on homeowners as a proposition that we're hearing out of the left to solve a housing supply and affordability crisis is just wrongly founded. And it's not just Vancouver. You know, according to your article, you were talking about the fact that Toronto was facing similar struggles as well. Absolutely. I mean, Toronto is, I'm going to tell you, second second place to, to, to Vancouver or the lower mainland. You know, we have highest rents. We have the highest housing costs. We have the longest approval times found another really interesting stat this morning, too. I'm talking about the growth in bureaucracy, uh, the government employees. For every government, for every private sector employee, we have hired four government employees across the country. But in British Columbia, for every private sector employee, we've hired 75 government employees. So that just blew my mind to hear that one this morning, because if you think about why do we need all these taxes? And are, are we creating affordable homes or are we just creating a lot of jobs? And, you know, I think the answer is in the evidence. Well, your article is at BIV, Business in Vancouver, BIV.com. And uh, Paul Sullivan, I think you had a, an article that is definitely worth more conversation. So hopefully you'll be able to come back on this show or uh, follow me and we'll keep this conversation going because, wow, there's a lot. I think I'm going to open up the phones to this on the other side of the break because there's a lot to talk about here. And thank you for shining light on it today. Hopefully we'll have this conversation again soon. It's my pleasure. Thank you. You know what I love when I find a new restaurant that I didn't know anything about and every once in a while I sit down I'm like, God, how did I not know this place existed? Whether it's deep fried chicken, which always seems to be my forte, or some type of poutine that I've never had, I am an absolute poutine fiend and anytime that I get a chance to find a new place that's got a new variant on that, I am all for it. But today, let us welcome Richard Wolak. He's the editor and publisher of VancouverFoodster.com, ready to let you know heading into the long weekend about a couple new trendy places. Richard, good afternoon. Good afternoon. And you and I are going to find poutine today, though. So no poutine. That is okay. I need to diversify. I can't just eat poutine every day. (laughs) But you will find some great new spots around the city and outside of the city that people can check out. Uh, The first one is actually, I dined there last night. It's called Vivace on the Drive, a great name. It took over a spot that used to be Federico's. People will remember Federico's was there for 22 years. Yes. It closed right when the pandemic um, started. And then it turned into something called Osita. That was short-lived. And now it's been replaced. It's called Vivace on the Drive. It opened a month ago, and it's phenomenal. I was really impressed last night watching the service. The servers were totally on it, friendly, and talking to everybody. The owner was going around to table to table to welcome everybody, greet them, and, and talk to people, which was that's, that you don't see very often anyway. Uh, and Chef Rory is behind in the kitchen cooking up kind of a European type of uh, food, European cuisine slash Italian. 
Um, and it just had a, got a great groove in there. Lots of people coming in. They had live music. They've got live music nightly now. And just different nights have different kinds of music. So last night was kind of like a 1920s, 30s, 40s, got a bit of a jazz beat to it. Mm. And you can tell that kind of crowd was coming in and uh, people really enjoy it. So it's like back to like the old Supper Club days, but of course com- completely different, not like the like what it was. Um, but uh, it was it was really good. And just and prices too. I looked at prices of the, the food and, you know, the downtown restaurants are quite expensive now. You look around and you see like, wow, like, you know, prices of fish dishes are in the 30s and 40s, and here it's not. Here it's like the late 20s. So I thought that was really good on them to go not super high and get it, get people in there that can in, come in and enjoy a meal. You know, I, I remember dancing at Frederico's once or twice with my wife and her parents as well, and there's a real nostalgia to that space. So I'm so glad you told me that there's somebody that's going to give that particular spot a go because I really feel like that's a big fixture on commercial. Well, I agree. It is. And, you know, they've completely redone it. It's beautiful inside. It's, it's totally updated from what it was. But, you know, I understood that the, the building that it's situated in is 120 years old. So it's, a, it's been there a long time. So that's part of the heritage of Commercial Drive. So it's great to see you know, a new, vibrant place come along that's sort of taken over from what Federico's was. Because Federico's only there for 22 years. But it was there long enough that, it, of course, yourself went and a lot of people had gone there. And now um, people are back and, and come in and for some really good food. So I tried some of the food, and, and my favorite dishes last night were actually the uh, the gnocchi was a standout. I actually loved it so much that the people next to me were trying to decide on what to order, and I said, order the gnocchi. And then they did, and then, uh, then another table did as well. So, you know, that kind of catches on when someone finds something they like, and then other people are like, I want that, I want it. Uh, so that was really good. And the uh, sockeye salmon was also delicious. As was their dessert. So this is something I actually not, I wouldn't order this too often. The banafee pie, because I'm not a huge fan of bananas and all that kind of stuff, but this was phenomenal. Completely different. It was served in a glass container, um, and it had kind of like the bottom kind of crusting to it. It was delicious. So really, really good on them for doing that. Very good. So Vivace on the Drive, 1728 commercial. Let me take you from commercial drive, Richard, to Main Street, which is a hotbed for good food these days. But, you know, one type of food that I always think Vancouver is either hit and miss, and I think this might be hit, is ramen. Correct. I agree. Um, and this spot is, is actually the old old bird location that was there for a few years. Now it's called Ramen Kunturi. Um, this is very, I thought it was very simple. But they're only doing four different kinds of ramen. They've got four bowls on the menu. Like, that's it. Their specialty here is a uh, chicken broth. So you'll find, like, a creamy chicken broth, one I had for one of them. There's another one, which is a chicken and seafood broth. But kind of have the same idea throughout, just different flavor variations. So it's keeping it very simple. So you can kind of go in, you go, like, I want this ramen, I want this one, I want this one. They have some cocktails and that kind of thing as well. But they're keeping it simple. So... I, I thought that was an interesting move as opposed to going to another ramen place, maybe downtown that might have 20 or 25 different variations on the menu. And it's super confusing, but this way they've done it simple. People are coming in or dining. that has been open about a month or so now, I believe. And it was also really good. So nice, you know, a hip place, it's up Ryler park neighborhood. So it's a bit further South than all the other ones that are down towards, you know, like towards Broadway and that kind of thing. So a bit further up, but I think they're, they're doing a really nice job there. I didn't realize Old Bird was out of business. I, I learned something every day. Okay. Um, I, unfortunately, we're not going to be able to make it to Gibson's today, but I do want you to take me to Hornby Street. There's a new Mexican kitchen doing good things. 
Yeah, so Tolalachi it uh, took over the old uh, Takaria location on Hornby. Um, beautiful job. They've just done a great job. So it's more of a casual spot. So you can just go in. You can go in anytime. No reservations. Just go in and order whatever you'd like. You can, they'll have it ready for you. They'll call you by number. They'll deliver it to the table. So you've got tacos, burritos, rice bowls. And one of my favorite dishes there was the uh, mole chicken taquitos. Really good. The mole itself was really good, and that was a great dish. Um, go have it by yourself or go share it with someone but, and get some other dishes. But they're open for lunch. They're open for kind of an early dinner right now, but uh, and they're about to open for breakfast starting in the new starting in September. So like right when people go back to school, they'll be offering back breakfast as well because it's kind of more of a downtown business mm-hmm. area there. So it is good. But I want, actually do want to mention Gibson's really fast, though. Let's do You're it. Going over to Gibson's, the bay, it's called the Bay in Gibson's. It's right in the main, main heart of uh, there. And it's all about pizza, and they've got some other dishes as well, but really good pizza. They're doing a phenomenal job. So anyone going over to Gibson's, going over Sunshine Coast from Vancouver, this is a great, fun spot to stop in and get some pizza. And it's just called The Bay. It's called The Bay. That's it. And it's actually chefs. Uh, one of the chefs that owns it is from Vancouver. He had worked in many restaurants around the city for years and then saw an opportunity over on the Sunshine Coast and took it. And went over and opened it, and they were, I mean, the night I was in, it was packed. It was, like, full of all these locals, all these regulars that either live over there or people were coming over from the city and they wanted to have a kind of, it's kind of a fun room. They've got these crazy artwork all over the place and ghetto blasters on the walls from the years back and, and you know, kind of a fun decor, a patio inside, and or sorry, patio outside. There's a few different ones, and then inside dining. So you can get cocktails, you can get beer, you can get... Um, pizza but they also have these really good meatballs and really good garlic bread and Caesar salad as well i love it i'm glad i'm finished work in 10 minutes here i feel hungry a lot more hungry than i was 10 minutes ago richard thank you for this let's do this again you're welcome thank you thanks for listening to the jill bennett show podcast can't wait for the latest episode to drop tune in to the jill bennett show live from noon till three on 980 cknw have a question or comment send me an email jill at cknw.com thanks again for listening Thank you.